Hey, welcome to The Scrum, WGBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley, and I'm joined by my colleague, Peter Kadzis. Peter, hello. Greetings, folks. We have a big-name guest for this episode, Massachusetts Congressman Jim McGovern. He is the chair of the House Rules Committee, which makes him one of the most powerful people in Washington. Congressman, thank you for joining us. I'm delighted to be here. There were actually a bunch of issues we wanted to talk about with the congressman But then just a few hours before we got in the studio, special counsel Robert Mueller surprised pretty much everyone by making his first public comments about his investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. Peter, before we bring the congressman in, give me your instant analysis on what Bob Mueller had to say. Well, I know some people were disappointed that he wasn't more pointed. I thought he was classic. Um... He may be the last Roman. What do you mean? Um, Old-fashioned, stately bearing. I I think most people don't realize that the establishment may be threadbare these days, but he is first and foremost an establishmentarian. He's a very old-fashioned sort of figure. And I think as our conversation goes forward, people will realize he said more than many people think he did. To that point, there's one comment that Mueller made which has been getting a lot of attention over the past few hours. Let's take a listen to it. If we had had confidence that the president clearly did not commit a crime, we would have said so. So with that, let's turn to Congressman Jim McGovern. Congressman, before we talk about the substance of uh, Mueller's appearance today, how did you find out he was going to speak? I I just... uh, Heard it on the news. <laughs> I mean, I we had no advance notice. Uh, I just uh, saw it uh, come up on a news flash, and uh, I tuned in. That's what I was wondering. Without asking you to give away state <laughs> secrets, I didn't uh, yeah. know if you guys would get sort of a special heads up. I'm know, not the sure. Night before I, I'm not sure like if the, well, I don't think anyone was notified the night before, but I'm not sure whether the speaker of the house was notified, uh, you know, in in advance uh, or not. But uh, but I was surprised that he uh, decided to make a statement today. How did you end up watching it? I know you're here in Massachusetts, back from D.C. for a few days. So how did you take in his comments? Uh, well, I, I was given a speech, and I hurried the speech so I could get back to my office to watch <laughs> it uh, on TV. I, I, uh, I, I didn't quite make it, so I listened to it on the radio. Uh, but uh, but I, I, thought it was, I thought it was powerful in the sense that uh, it seemed to me to be a big exclamation point uh, you know, at the end of his 400-page uh, report. And basically what he did is he reminded us what was in the report. Uh, And uh, most people haven't read the report. Everybody has an opinion on the report, but most people haven't read it. Um, I've been doing town halls all throughout my district, and, you know, people will have this commentary uh, on the report, and I'll I'll ask, did you read it? And they'll say, no, I I haven't read it yet. Uh, It's not available. I said, it's available online. You can buy it in bookstores. But he reminded us of the essential and most important details, and that is that the Russians interfered in our election. And this is a serious matter. And so that's not a hoax. It's real. And uh, he reminded us again at the end that we still have to care about the fact that the Russians interfered in our election, which is a signal to Congress, you better do something about it. He also made it clear that the president was not exonerated uh, and, um, and that uh, there was no intention of indicting the president because he believed that the Justice Department... Uh, directive is clear, and that is that you can't indict a sitting president. No possibility. Of right, no possibility. And so that would have to, you know, any kind of action on what was in the report would have to go to Congress. It sounded to me like 
he made the, the points that you mentioned, including saying Russia, you know, has was a bad actor in 2016. We need to be on the lookout for what's going to happen down the road. We need to be on this. Uh, said he did not have an option to indict and would have cleared the president if he could have, right. but was not able to do that. Didn't he also call out the attorney general for at least implicitly misrepresenting the role that the ability to indict a sitting president played or didn't play? In his, I know you've called for, for right. William Barr to resign. Yeah, I, mean, I think what he made clear was that William Barr is a liar. I mean, he lied. Uh, and he um, and he lied to Congress. I mean, if you were to take the attorney general at his word, uh, the reason uh, the, you take his word, he he characterized his conversations with Mueller. This was before the entire report was was released. Uh, he characterized his conversations with Mueller as being uh, that uh, Mueller saw nothing there. Basically, uh, he did not couch it in terms of the fact that Mueller believed that he couldn't indict because of the Justice Department. Uh, memorandum which says that you can't indict a sitting president. So the, the attorney general lied. You know, it, it, as a young man, I was a Watergate junkie. Um, and I followed the Clinton impeachment very closely. What, what strikes me about Washington today, and this is what I want to ask you about, is that the Republican Party seems to just willfully disregard facts that are right in front of their nose. Um, is it any different in the House, you know, when you're off the floor, when you're alone privately? I'm not asking you to betray yeah. confidences, but um, uh, I'm assuming that some of them are in touch with reality. Look, I have Republican colleagues who, uh, when we're not in a hearing or not on the House floor, and when we talk about the president, uh, they roll their eyes. Uh, I mean, how, how could you not roll your eyes at not just what's happening here, but with some of the tweets and the way he behaves? And, and uh, but I mean, political survivability seems to take precedence over doing what's right. And I think for a lot of Republicans, they understand that Donald Trump's popularity amongst the Republican base and Republican primary voters is really high. And that if they go against him, they will lose their primary, uh, you know, even in very solidly Republican districts. And so I think a lot of this, I'm sad to say, is about self-preservation uh, and, uh, and, you know, and not about what, doing what's right. I, quite frankly, I would, I, would, I would much rather have them tell me that they believe all the stuff that the president says or they believe that, you know, there's nothing to this. Uh, as a justification for them to be silent. But when they tell me privately that they are deeply disturbed, but they don't feel they can say anything, I find that very troublesome. I mean, we need a Margaret Chase Smith uh, on the Republican side to stand up and to say enough is enough. She did that, you know, in confronting Joseph McCarthy. We need somebody to do that here. Justin Amash, my colleague, I give him great credit. I, I think it took a lot of guts for him to do what he did, hopefully others will follow. He got a standing ovation, right? He did. In town hall yeah. he, did. He, he did. And um, and he read the report. I mean, and I and I think that's the key here. It's like we need to sit everybody in a room and read the report. A bunch of us uh, took turns reading the report aloud in the rules committee, uh, in the committee I have. Uh, we, we did it, you know, for the C-SPAN cameras so that they could, you know, if people really wanted to, they could, we could, they could hear the entire thing rather than read it. Uh, but uh, 
but when you read it or you listen to it, it is it is damning. I mean, really, it's disturbing. Do do you think, and Adam, maybe I'm jumping too far ahead here, but do you think in the wake of Mueller's statement today that the House will eventually move to open an impeachment inquiry? So I I believe, quite frankly, that that the next step is for the House Judiciary Committee uh, to open an inquiry to formally begin considering whether uh, impeachment is warranted. I think we're at that point. Um, and, um, and I think that, that to me seems like a logical way to proceed. Whether or not that's what will happen, I think will be determined by, you know, what my colleagues, uh, the majority of my colleagues believe when, I, when we get back to Washington next week. Is that new for you, by the way? No, I was just going to... It's, it's not new. I mean, I have voted twice uh, to when um, Congressman Al Green has brought up uh, impeachment proceedings to refer that to the Judiciary Committee. But quite frankly, I've, I've not been out there screaming and yelling and saying, let's 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 go down this road, because even, uh, you know, I've, I've been trying to be respectful of my colleagues. And look, the the the, uh, the plan was to have the committees, uh, existing committees do their investigations and and proceed um, in an orderly fashion forward and get all the facts out. But what's becoming clear is the, the White House is is obstructing even that. I mean, they're not obeying subpoenas. Um, they're not complying with subpoenas. They're, they're, they're doing everything they can to try to convince people not to testify. So it seems to me that this may be a way that might strengthen our hand uh, in the courts um, if we need to go that way to get information released. As you've probably seen, there are a lot of people who think Bob Mueller essentially said to Congress today, all right, guys, it's time to get going with this impeachment thing. Let's play a little clip. And I should note, this is lightly edited, but in a responsible way. It it takes a couple key utterances from Mueller's comments and and puts them closer together. So let's listen to how he uh, alluded to impeachment. Under long-standing department policy, a president cannot be charged with a federal crime while he is in office. That is unconstitutional. Charging the president with a crime was therefore not an option we could consider the Constitution requires a process other than the criminal justice system to formally accuse a sitting president of wrongdoing. Congressman Jim McGovern, there was a tweet today from a guy I've never heard of named Paul Gasari, who said of those remarks, Mueller pretty much gave Congress the letters IMP blank blank CH and told them to start buying vowels, which I thought was a humorous way (laughs) to, to make a very serious argument. Do you think that's a fair characterization? Was that Mueller saying, just a reminder, Congress, you can do this. You have the power to impeach President Trump if you believe that's the right way to go. I think he's definitely saying that Congress, uh, the ball's in your court and you have to do something. And, um, you know, uh, whether or not we can proceed by having existing committees you know, continue to try to do their oversight or whether we should do, as I just suggested, have the House Judiciary Committee, uh, you know, open an inquiry to begin uh, formally considering uh, whether impeachment is warranted. Um, I definitely think that is a charge to Congress that, okay, you know, I I, I can't, I'm not, I can't do everything here. Uh, You have a responsibility, a constitutional responsibility, and you need to live up to it. And, um, and so we'll see, um, you know. And again, I, 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 people sometimes ask me why. Why is there so much angst over this? Um, and part of it, I think, is the politics. Uh, depending on which pundit you listen to, they'll tell you, well, if you go down this road, it'll 
blow up and you give Trump you know, automatic reelection or, you know, and it'll backfire or hurt you. Or whatever. And I'm like, I, I get all those arguments. Um, but quite frankly, we're beyond talking about this in terms of political implications. I mean, we have to do what's right. And people will look back on this years from now and decide whether we behaved honorably in the way we should, living up to our constitutional responsibilities, or did we play this just solely, you know, in, in, a, in a very political way? You know, uh, I, I was hearing somebody make uh, today commenting on the fact that, uh, you know, uh, during the debate on the war in Iraq, um, I, and I remember this, I was, I was there, in our, in our Democratic caucus. I mean, there were these debates about, uh, you know, what we should do. And almost everybody thought going to war was a mistake. Uh, but there was still a debate about whether people should vote no because in the aftermath of 9-11 and, you know, the, the, the polls were so overwhelmingly in favor of it, you know, you'll get crushed if you vote against the war. A lot of people voted for the war. Uh, I mean, and I, you know, I, I, and I, I did not vote for the war. I voted against the war. But I knew when I voted against the war that there could be a political cost because even the polls here in Massachusetts initially were the people were overwhelmingly in support of what George, uh, you know, W. Bush was doing. But, you know, then you fast forward now and you say, you know, doing what was right, you know, uh, that, that, that I'm glad I did it. Right. That's and, and I didn't let I didn't I, was, I didn't let my judgment get clouded with all the political implications. People have a way of rewarding politicians who do the right thing. And it may not seem apparent, you know, up front initially, but over time, people get it. And so I, I, I cringe when I hear so much talk about how this will impact the elections. You know, the elections are not for, you know, a while away, a year from November. Let, let, let's do what's right, and then we can defend it to the American people. Do, do you think, I, I wanted to talk about impeachment and presidential politics. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we're in... effectively a presidential cycle. I mean, they get longer and longer every year. We've had a few candidates, Elizabeth Mm -hmm. Warren, Senator Harris, Cory Booker today, um, come out firmly in favor of beginning proceedings. Um, Do you... The the pundit class... seems to be suggesting that going down the impeachment road is full of pitfalls for Democratic presidential candidates. By the way, I used to think that. I really don't anymore. I think a lot of it depends on how the candidates handle it themselves. Um, uh, Do you have any thoughts? I'm not really asking a question, but do you have any thoughts about this in the presidential election? Yeah, I mean, you know, I remember Watergate as well. um, And I was, um, you know, um, I think in middle high school, at the beginning of high school when when that all began. But, uh, you know, if I remember correctly, before the hearings began, Nixon's popularity was still pretty strong yeah it was it was during the hearings and you know what was exposed and the criminality of the administration that shocked a lot of people and including a lot of Republicans um, and um, and one of the reasons why Nixon resigned is because he knew that he had lost the support of not only Democrats but he, he was losing the support of Republicans I think w- what we need to do here is we need to put forward a process which is not you know based on 
presidential candidate saying, let's move forward on an impeachment inquiry. It ought to be a credible process that is handled, you know, professionally and with respect um, and gets all the facts out and, and, and people believe is credible to help provide the narrative basically of what the Mueller report is all about. Um, I think the story needs to be told. I mean, too many people do not know the story. When you talk about this issue, when you're out at town hall, sometimes it becomes this, you know, the, the, you know, the pro-Trump people will say, you know, there's nothing there. And then the anti-Trump people will say, oh, he should be impeached right now, right? I think, you know, if we're going to do this, it, it has to be a credible process. And it, it can't look partisan. It can't be partisan. It has to be credible for the sake of our country. And the Watergate hearings that Sam Irvin um, presided over, I mean, were viewed by Democrats and Republicans as authentic and as dignified and as professional and as credible as it possibly could be. I think that made the difference. But in, in today's, uh, by the way, the, the way, I agree with that characterization completely. But in today's, you know, hyperventilating cable TV, social media culture, um, do you think that's possible again? Well, I, I do. Um, it's more complicated with social media. It's more complicated because back then you had three networks and now you have a million, right? Um, and people are getting their news, not just from the networks and from papers, but, you know, they, uh, you know from podcasts, from social media. I mean, there's, there's lots of stuff out there. But I do believe, I believe process is important here. And, um, and I think that, um, and I think if we, if we conduct this uh, in a way that um, people view as nonpartisan, uh, but is serious, I think, you know, I think the majority of people will accept uh, the final result. Not to get too wonky here, but as the chair of the Rules Committee, you introduced a package of rules changes, right, right. earlier this year. Would the changes that have been made under your watch, would they alter the way impeachment proceedings would progress? Or is that just etched in stone? And yeah, forgive my ignorance. Yeah, no, I mean, none of the changes we made would would impact this at all. I mean, there's a there's a process that would go forward. The Rules Committee ultimately would play a role in bringing, uh, if we went the road of impeachment, bringing those, uh, ar- you know, those uh, articles to the floor. Um, but um, but the process that we would follow is a process that we followed during the Watergate hearings. When you say you would play a role in terms of bringing the, the articles to the fore, what would your role specifically be if that were to happen? Yeah, so I, I have, I, I'm doing, I'm beginning, I, I feel like I need to just start doing some research on this, <laughs> but I just remember when Bill Clinton was impeached, Joe Moakley was the, uh, you know, uh, you know, had to uh, handle uh, for the Democrats um, the, uh, uh you know how how impeachment would be considered on the on the House floor, and um, you know so it was uh, so the Rules Committee. Nothing, this nothing, is your mentor, right? Yeah, right. And who used to be the chairman of the Rules Committee, and you know put me on the Rules Committee, but uh, the Rules Committee will play a role in that, and, and how it will be considered, and how we brought to the floor, and um, you know if if that's where we end up. Um, I know you're shying away for and for very good reasons. Um, from the political considerations here. But impeachment is, by its very nature, less a legal procedure than a political one. Um, And do you think that if if an impeachment inquiry is started, 
that there'll be any fallout in the House or Senate elections in 2020. Yeah, and maybe the word I should be using is partisan rather than political. I mean, everything we do is political. So, I mean, and being political is not necessarily a negative thing. But uh, if you, if you, but but I, I think we're I, what I was alluding to is the fact that I, I think viewing this as how it would impact partisan elections really should not be the major consideration as to whether we move forward or not. Look, I don't know how this would impact the elections. I think it would all depend on how um, you know if we were to move forward with this formal inquiry. How I think it would all it would be determined in large part how we handle it. I mean, did it look partisan? Did it, you know, was it all partisan? Are people perceiving yeah, as are grandstanding? People, yeah, right? are people perceiving it as grandstanding? Or is there, or is, or is this done in a way that people say, you know, they handled it the way they should handle it? And I, I think that's incredibly important. I think if we do that, I think, I, I don't think there's, the, there's political follow-up. But look, here's the other thing. I personally believe that one of the challenges right now uh, with the way we've been handling this in the in the Congress is that, you know, committees have issued subpoenas. The administration said we're not going to abide by the subpoenas. Then the chair of the committee does a letter, and then the, the attorney general or whoever writes a letter back, and then we do in a press conference with another letter. So it's all this back and forth, and nobody's telling the story about what happened. And we, you know, and at events that I'm at, when some of these issues get brought up, I have to remind people of the, of how this all began. This began because a foreign adversary, in this case, Russia, interfered in our election. So let's begin there and we, that we should tell the story about what happened. Donald Trump and his team enthusiastically, you know, joyously welcomed the assistance of our foreign adversary. Bring it on. We want you to help us out. Um, I mean, yeah, Julian Assange, I thought, must have expected different legal treatment yeah, than he got from the Department ab- of Justice ab- because ab- Trump said he loved absolutely. WikiLeaks. And then, and, and then this president lied and then covered it up and had his associates and those who work for him to cover things up. And so th- that's the story, right? That's the shell of the story. We need, to, we, we need to do hearings to tell people the story so people understand why this is so serious. But let me ask you, I don't mean what I'm about to ask as an as in as an in-your-face question. But Trump and and Team Trump have been geniuses at keeping um, the focus on the process rather than the substance of these issues. Um, What happens if, uh, if Trump just continues to stonewall? Just refuses. Well, that's that's where the courts have to step up to the plate and and provide assistance in a timely manner, so that we can uh, get all the facts and all the truth out there. Uh, look, Trump is the king of misinformation. I mean, he's the king of propaganda, uh, and uh, it's 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 amazing to me that people fall for it. I mean, today, uh, listening to both, seeing the president's tweet and Sarah Sanders, his press secretary, tweet. tweet in the, you know, in the aftermath of Mueller's press availability, it, it, it was just stunning to me because it, it was so, it, it did not represent at all what Mueller said. It was, in fact, it was, it just twisted his words out of context. It was an, a, a lie, essentially. And yet, you know, on Fox News, that's what they're telling, well, right? I mean, it, it's, it, it is, but it's just, it, it's, it's just a lie. And here you have the videotape. Right, it's not even 
you know. You know, for what it's worth, my sense, and I, I got this secondhand from yeah. social media from uh, a guy who covers media for CNN, yeah. but I think that Fox's news anchors were actually accurately conveying the substance of what Mueller said. Now the question is, what does the opinion side do with it? Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and, and that's fair because there are some Fox News anchors who actually are, are good uh, newsmen and women and, you know, and, and report the news. But it's it's the, the shows that kind of drive public opinion yep. uh, that take this and distort this stuff. Well, I, I have to say, um, things have so changed with Lindsey Graham that um, I would now say that you know, Lindsey Graham is proving to be a far more accomplished liar than President Trump is. I mean, um, and, and that's and what, a, and what a sad commentary, though, on Lindsey Graham, um, who was a protege of John McCain, who's a guy I, I disagree with on a lot of things, but on some things we agreed. But I always admired him for his integrity and his service to the country and and for his dedication to public service. Uh, and I just assumed because John McCain was essentially like a father to Lindsey Graham, that Lindsey Graham would pick up that baton when John McCain passed away. And Lindsey Graham has turned out to be such a, a sad character. I mean, and I, I, I think if John McCain must, must be sh shaking his head in heaven, looking down upon how Lindsey Graham has just sold his soul, all to win an election, uh, to avoid a, a, a bruising Republican primary in South Carolina. Uh, I mean, again, you don't have to you only have to go back a, a year and a half and play the tapes of Lindsey Graham being interviewed and calling this president an idiot, you know, uh, you know, a nutcase. And, and and now he's the greatest president we've ever had. It, it, it just it, it's it's sad. It is pathetic. Uh, but, um, you know, it's it, 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 apparently getting renominated as a Republican in South Carolina is something that Lindsey Graham cares more about than his reputation. I, I, I want to switch just a little bit to um, the counterintelligence aspect of um, what I'll call Russiagate. Um, anyone who watches a lot of cable television or reads the newspapers closely knows that there's been a lot of speculation or questions asked about when is more about the counterintelligence, um, the, the more about the investigation of Russian penetration going to come out. Now, I'm not asking you that question. Right. What I wanted to ask is how does Congress collectively, both houses, get at that? So um, the intelligence committees in the House and Senate are looking into those matters very seriously and very methodically, and and um, and there was a standoff uh, in terms of the House Intelligence Committee being able to get certain information from the administration that seems to be at least temporarily resolved uh, at this particular point. Uh, and uh, so that investigation continues, uh, and I think it's a very serious investigation, again, because... We know not only by the intelligence agencies under Obama, but the intelligence agencies under Trump all say that what happened in 2016 was a direct interference by Russia in our elections. They also all say that it's happening again, and it's going to happen even uh, at a more intense uh, rate unless we do something about it. And yet what we're learning from the, uh, the ex-head of Homeland Security under Trump is that every time she wanted to raise the issue, 
of Russian interference. Uh, she was told, don't do it. He'll get mad. He'll blow up. You can't talk about it. And so while all this other stuff is going on, I mean, we are not prepared for what might hit us in the next election. And I have to tell you, this is exactly what Russia wants. The more they can dis discredit our elections, the more that they can intervene and manipulate our elections, then the less credibility people, are, you know, the less credibility elections will, ha will have for average people. They, why, why participate in an election that some foreign country is going to be able to come in and, and manipulate? Uh, they're trying to, to basically shake the confidence uh, in, our, in our system of government. Uh, and, uh, and if we don't get serious about this, they're going to succeed. The president, when he stalked out of that meeting with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer recently, ended up saying afterward that, I think it was afterward, maybe it was in the meeting itself, no. I, I can't remember, that you can't legislate while pursuing things involving Russia, the Russia investigation. You know, I, I can't remember what phrase he used. Obviously, he's dismissive of this, calls it a hoax. But I'm wondering if he actually has a point and if it is unrealistic of Democrats to think that it's possible to get business as usual done on any level yeah. until this impeachment yeah. question is decided. Am I wrong about that? Yeah, I think you are. Okay. <laughs> well, that's reassuring. Right. I'd you know, actually I, like I, to be I, wrong about you know, I mean, and I look at Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton. I mean, Bill Clinton was, you know, pursued and investigated uh, over and over and over again. I mean, they impeached him, uh, but government didn't stop. Uh, you know, leg major legislation was passed. I mean, we balanced the budget, started, we eliminated the deficit, started paying down the debt, you know, uh, invested in education programs. Uh, I mean, I go on and on and on. I mean, this but, is stuff that happened during and after yeah, impeachment? Yeah, during and after. And, and I will tell you that I remember after impeachment going to a Christmas party at the White House with my wife and being shocked that some of the people that were in line to get their pictures taken with Bill Clinton were those who were leading the <laughs> impeachment call. Uh, I mean, and I, I just, it just. Any names stand out in your memory? Uh, yeah, I, know, it was, I, I don't want to get into that right now, but the bottom line is they were funny. there. They were there. And, um, and Bill Clinton, you know, greeted them and their families like they were incredible friends. And I was just amazed at that. But, but that's him, right? right? And but, this but, is a very different kind right. of guy. But, but the point of the matter is, is that presidents have to do, they have to multitask. And, you know, and there's nothing about this investigation that prohibits or ties the president's hands at working on an infrastructure bill with Democrats and Republicans in the Congress. I feel ridiculous. Oh, sorry. No, 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 no go ahead, I, I mean, it seems absurd for me to push back right. at anything you say about the way government works right. because you're there and I'm not. But it seems to me that President Trump is just fundamentally different than almost everyone to hold, uh, everyone who's held the office before right. him in that he has such a massive sense of grievance and he right. has been such a serial breaker of norms. Right. So Bill Clinton and his predecessors, she right. multitasked while right. their uh, political fights were waged. But I don't know that President Trump is wired that way and even capable of doing well, that. Well, let's, let's put it this way. The ball's in his court as to whether or not he wants to get things done. Gotcha. I, I suspect that, uh, quite frankly, the investigations were a convenient excuse for him to wiggle out of a negotiation on an infrastructure bill. Because... You know, at the first meeting that Pelosi had with Trump on the uh, on the infrastructure, they talked about a number of how much we had to invest in, in you know, to bring our infrastructure up to where it should be. Pelosi walked in with a number of $1.5 trillion, and Trump said, well, $2 trillion. And Pelosi was like, oh, okay, well, I'll compromise. I'll, cool, comp right, right? I'll compromise. We'll go with you on this. 
by now we have to figure out the pay-fors. And Pelosi said, we have some pay-fors, but you need to come up with some pay-fors too so we can compare notes so you don't back out of this because you say, you know, you don't want to raise revenues. He says, okay, that's the deal. Well, I think what ended up happening was he talked to Mitch McConnell, he talked to Mick Mulvaney and a few others, uh, and, and basically they're like, we don't, we're not, we don't want to find revenues anywhere. And so rather than admitting that he can't control, you know, his own party, I think it's a convenient excuse to say, I'm not going to deal with you while investigations are going on. That's my hunch. Uh, but uh, but who knows? I mean, this president, you're right, he defies the norms. I, I think he's temperamentally unfit for office, to be honest with you. I just, I wake up every morning, I, I'm afraid to turn the news on because I just, it's like, every, there's always something that is shocking that is that comes out of his mouth or, you know, or that he tweets about that is that is not only shocking, it's embarrassing. And uh, and so I, a lot of us would love to see this chapter in our history come to a close as soon as humanly possible. <laughs> yeah, but before we bring it to a close, I have one more question, yeah. and that's looking down the road, um, the United States debt ceiling, the amount of money mm-hmm. we are legally authorized to borrow is going to be running out. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a routine happening, but political crises, as you would know better than most, typically coalesce around these. Um, To me, it seems like a a perfect opportunity for Trump to, you know, stage yet another government shutdown um, or try to blame, blame this on the Democrats. But I, I, well... What I'm stuttering to get beyond is um, the world economy has proven to be much more resilient than most of us thought. Um, I just wonder if sometime this fall, Trump is going to go too far and trigger, trigger inadvertently some sort of economic calamity that's that's based around the United States being interpreted as, you know, not being able to honor its debts. Well, he's certainly working overtime to try to screw things up. Uh, and I think you just summed it up. I mean, if we don't increase the debt ceiling, then that means we default on paying our bills. And for, you know, the greatest economy in the world to not be able to meet its financial obligations, I think would have a you know, really detrimental impact not only on our economy but the world economy, and so uh, I mean, it's. But but I think what he believes that crisis and chaos work to his advantage, and he every day gets up and tries to think of another way to, you know, to throw things into a into a frenzy and into chaos so that we're not focusing on. on solving the, the nation's problems. And that's really frustrating to me. I mean, I look, we have people who want us to do more in health care. We ought to, right? We have, even with the Affordable Care Act, there are millions of people who don't have health insurance and millions and millions of people who have health insurance that, quite frankly, doesn't cover anything if they get sick. We need to fix this <laughs> system, right? But, you know, trying to focus attention on fixing health care for more than, you know, an hour with this guy in the White House is really hard to do because... You know, every minute there's another shocking development and something that is, you know, stunningly out of the norm that, you know, you just can't believe is happening. 
And again, it, I, I, I think he's doing lasting damage to our country, certainly uh, standing around the world. I mean, this is a guy who's cozies up to every dictator, you know, who pays him a compliment and then beats up on our allies. I've, I've just, I've, I've never, I never thought that anybody like that could possibly get anywhere near the White House, never by, never might be in the White House. This is an, abs- an absurd last question for me to ask no. of you, but because you just mentioned what you did and because you opened up talking about how Republicans, you think, are loath to call him out publicly because they want to continue being elected and their base really likes what the president is selling. In 30 seconds or less, if you can, <laughs> uh, what what is it that the people who love the president find so appealing about the MO that you have just described? What do you think that the satisfaction is that they get from watching him operate the way he does? I think this president has been very successful at making a lot of people, especially people who are pretty well off, feel like they're victims. And uh, he has been a, he's been masterful at that. Uh, and so, you know, um, you know, you're, 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 you have a, a your pothole in front of your house that's not being fixed. Blame immigrants. You know, it's all the immigrants. We're spending all the money on immigrants. Or, um, you know, he, he finds ways to drive wedges, uh, you know, in our communities that are just so destructive. You know, I, I, I don't quite understand. I don't understand the way he thinks. I, I don't understand people like him, you know, who spend their entire life just trying to sow division, trying to tell people, you know, we ought to focus on the differences between you and somebody else. It is such a waste of time. I mean, you know, how refreshing it would be if instead of this guy, we had somebody who was trying to bring the country together. And look, I understand there are ideological differences in this country. You know, I mean, I'm a liberal Democrat. I mean, I'm, I, you know, I'm a George McGovern Democrat. I mean, that's, you know, but you don't have to agree on everything to agree on something. And we ought to be finding that common ground and moving forward and we not we ought, we ought not to be you know you know throwing gasoline on the fire. His behavior on immigration, his reopening up these debates on abortion, you know his attacks on the LBGTQ community. I mean, it's disgusting. It really is. And um, and I'm I'm I believe in the goodness of the American people. And so I'm I'm counting on people actually rising to the occasion, uh, and um, you know and making sure that this guy doesn't get reelected. I mean that's. I'm I'm betting on the American people because I believe that they're good. All right. That is going to do it for another episode of The Scrum. Congressman Jim McGovern, thank you for thank joining you. us. Thank you. Peter Kadzis, any closing thoughts? Uh, just I hope we can get the congressman back, say, after a Democrat has been nominated <laughs> because I'd really like to talk about policy rather than politics. Okay. I, I'm, I'm, it's a deal. I'm, I think I'm the only person in Washington who's not running for president. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, you know, George McGovern only carried Massachusetts. I'm a McGovern who probably couldn't even carry Massachusetts. So um, I'm, I, I, I know I'm better off in the House. And as always, thanks to you for listening. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you did not, tell us why. You can reach us by email at scrum at wgbh.org or catch us on Twitter I'm at Riley Adam. Peter is at Kadzis. Our engineer for this episode was John Parker. We get crucial production help from him, Gary Mott, Andrew Massawa, and Doug Sugarts. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.